Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. Lauren Agee was the type of girl who you just naturally wanted to be friends with. The 21-year-old was known for her big personality. She was lively, outgoing, and as her family claimed, quote, full of sugar and a little bit of spice. She was a gorgeous girl, too. Her dimpled smile was her trademark, and girlfriend had great eyebrows. She was very family-oriented, even despite her parents' divorce growing up. She was close with both parents, as well as her stepfather, Michael, and she adored her three siblings, Allison, Jordan, and Joshua. She was by equal parts a daddy's girl and best friends with her mother. Though she was born in Mississippi, Lauren was raised in Tennessee, and in the summer of 2015, she was living in Hendersonville, Tennessee, with her mother, Sherry, and her stepfather. Growing up, she was a talented artist and athlete, so it was no wonder she shined when it came to dancing. After dancing her way through high school, Lauren earned a scholarship to the dance program at Bethel University. But she decided to leave Bethel and pursue another field of interest, one I can understand, criminal justice. Transferring colleges comes, you know, with its own set of challenges, but as the academic year was just a few weeks away, Lauren was nevertheless ready to start her new year at Vol State Community College, especially with her boyfriend by her side. Many people in Lauren's life said that he seemed to be the one for her, with how serious their relationship had grown. Looking forward to the future, Lauren really did seem to have it all during that summer of 2015. According to her mother, quote, everything in her life was great. She was living here at home with us. She had a boyfriend. She was so happy. And then she died. Today, I'm going to be telling you the story of the mysterious events surrounding Lauren Agee's death and why her death might be a murder after all. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. July 2015, Lauren approached her mother with one of those strange hybrids of request statements that wind up becoming the norm when college kids return home from their independent lives on campus and back under their parents' roofs. She shared with Sherry that she had been invited to join her friend Hannah Palmer at an event called Wakefest that was being held at the end of the month. Wakefest, as Lauren explained to Sherry, was a three-day gathering held on Center Hill Lake in DeKalb County, just two hours away. The weekend centered around wakeboarding competitions for the participants, while attendees would watch the contests, cheer on their friends, and enjoy some lakeside fun throughout the weekend. I can imagine Lauren probably didn't disclose just how much partying went on at Wakefest, and it was a fucking lot, or how notorious its wet and wild reputation was. But even without that information, Sherry wasn't too crazy about Lauren going from the start. Sherry's biggest hesitation actually came from who Lauren was going with, not necessarily where she was going. Hannah Palmer and Lauren had known each other for years as they grew up just a few streets away from each other, but she wasn't a friend Sherry was overjoyed for Lauren to still have. In Sherry's words, Hannah was, quote, a fair-weather friend, only around when she was between boyfriends. Sherry also saw Hannah as someone who cared more about partying and drinking than she did about maintaining friendships. And to be fair, I think we all have someone in our lives that we can think of who we look back on and go just like, damn it, my mother was right about you. My dad was right about you. Parents always know when someone is shady or disingenuous, when a group of people you hang out with won't be around in a year's time because they don't have your best interests at heart. Lauren did her best, however, to assuage her mom's fears, telling her that they had already figured out that they'd be staying in a cabin, that she was looking forward to hanging out with Hannah, and besides, didn't she trust her? At the end of the day, beyond voicing her initial concerns, there wasn't much Sherry could or did do to stop Lauren from going. Like I said, it was that weird balancing act of being your own adult while you were still someone's child. Lauren was 21, and well within her rights to make her own decisions as a woman, but she respected her mom enough to tell her her plans and 
Maybe she even did want a little bit of permission granted and to have her mother's blessing. In any regard, so it was on Friday, July 25th, that Lauren packed a weekender bag with a change of clothes, bathing suit, flip-flops, and a sleeping bag into her car. She would be driving the two hours to Center Hill Lake with Hannah, and just as she was pulling out, her mother pulled into the driveway. Quote, just as God would have it, Sherry later said. Lauren hopped out of the car and gave her mom a hug goodbye. Sherry went to wave at Hannah in the passenger seat, but apparently Hannah never even looked up to say hello. It gave Sherry an odd feeling, reminding her of how apprehensive she was about this friendship between this girl and her daughter. Sherry, speaking to True Crime Daily, later said of the exchange, quote, as a mom, I just really had this really bad feeling. And then she started to walk away and I went, no, no, no. I want one more hug, one, one more hug. And Lauren came over and I just squeezed her really tightly. And I said, Lauren, be careful. With that, Lauren got back into her car and the two girls drove off for a weekend on the water. It would also be the last time Sherry would see her daughter alive. From the jump of this story, there things are strange and hashtag questions are many. Most of the reporting done on Lauren's story focuses on Saturday, July 26th into Sunday, July 27th. However, Wakefest was a three-day event and it started on the Friday, July 25th. There are also reports that Lauren had only intended to stay for one night because she had plans with her boyfriend. But the night in question was in fact in question. Was she only going to stay Friday and leave Saturday? Or were her plans to stay Saturday and leave Sunday? I can't even begin to tell you how much I puzzled over this timeline, especially after I discovered a particularly eyebrow raising quote within the deep dive I took on this research. And there's a quote I'll be sharing with you in a little bit. All that said, I feel confident in saying that Lauren did leave for Wakefest on Friday, July 25th and arrived that same day. I believe Lauren intended to leave Saturday to see her boyfriend, but something came up to change her mind and she willingly changed her plans. Or something prevented her entirely from sticking to those plans so she couldn't leave. Sheila Wysocki, the private investigator later hired by Sherry Smith, confirmed the timeline for me, both on her podcast without warning and over an Instagram DM conversation she and I had. I'm not kidding when I say I was hell-bent on getting a hard and fast confirmation on what day Lauren arrived because whatever the answer was, it would massively, massively change the direction of the way I told this story and it would affect the number of questions down the line. All that said, by the time Lauren and Hannah arrived at Center Hill Lake on Friday, things were already taking a turn for the not great. Where Lauren had thought she would be spending most of her time just with Hannah, she was wrong. And her mother's opinion of Hannah immediately comes to mind. Instead of a fun weekend adventure between two old girlfriends, Lauren found herself third-wheeling Hannah and her new boyfriend, Aaron Lilly. And... Aaron's friend, Chris Stout, who Lauren had never met before. According to Alice and Lauren's sister, quote, I did not know them. From my understanding, Chris was a stranger to my sister and to Hannah. So right off the bat, the weekend is already taking a turn that Lauren hadn't prepared for. Another unplanned surprise. The cabin plan Lauren had told her mom about apparently never solidified or it never even existed in the first place. Instead of having a lakeside cabin to bunk in and where they could sleep off their sun-drenched, alcohol-filled few days, the group would be camping on a cliffside above the lake via an outcropping. Rumors abound over whether or not Lauren knew about the camping component of their trip from the get-go. Did she tell a white lie to her mother, who was already visibly unsure about her daughter going off for the weekend? Maybe she also created the story of the cabin so both her mother and her boyfriend, who wasn't in attendance, wouldn't worry. These white lies of embellishing certain aspects so as not to worry our parents or other loved ones are something that I'm sure most of us utilized in some form or another during our teenage and college years. What they don't know won't hurt them, right? However, 
I'm inclined to think Lauren did no such lying because she, she had no idea about the camping combinations. Think about what we know Lauren packed. Just a sleeping bag, a change of clothes, flip-flops, very small things like that. Girlfriend had nothing on hand to suggest that she was ready to hunker down on a clifftop for a night or two. Especially when you realize that traversing back and forth from the clifftop and what that all entailed. Because this wasn't just a pleasant little raised sandbar situation. No, no. This clifftop was a steep as fuck 90-foot climb up on one side and a 40-foot climb on the other. And yes, it was a fucking climb, cue Miley Cyrus, that the group had to essentially repel up the treacherous, rocky, unstable cliffside via a tiny-ass rope to get up to this site. And if they wanted to get down, well, take your pick. You could jump 90 feet into the water and have less of a swim back to the marina, or you could jump the shorter 45-foot drop and be forced to swim around the length of the outcropping combined with the distance there already was from the cliff to the marina. Not to mention on that same side, actually on both sides, there were hidden shafts of rocks beneath the surface of the water that you more or less essentially had to pray you didn't hit. So somehow these so-called accommodations get worse. Worse than that, you say? Oh yes, much fucking worse. There was only one tent for the group a tent that Hannah had so kindly claimed for herself and Aaron. Lauren, on the other hand, she did have somewhere to sleep, in a hammock that was loosely tied between two trees dangling over the lake on one side that she would be sharing with Chris, this dude she had quite literally just met. And while some say that certain pictures that later surfaced from the weekend that show her smiling while sitting in the hammock with Chris and thus prove she was fine with the arrangement, I'm going to guess that that was just for the camera. If Lauren is anything like I imagined she was, and as a former 21-year-old, I can speak to this idea, I bet she was just putting on a brave face to seem laid back, to not make a fuss, and pretended that she was fine to go with the flow. In fact, Lauren's unhappiness with the hammock of it all was actually verbalized, though not out and out to the other members of the campsite. During the weekend, Lauren ran into a high school friend, Cassie Franks, and she shared how annoyed she was with the surprise camping expedition and her new hammock bunkmate. According to Cassie, when Lauren shared where exactly the group was staying, her displeasure was obvious and Cassie understood why, as she had stayed on that clifftop a time or two before and knew exactly what a picnic it was not. Quote, I could see that 100% that she did not want to be up there on that cliff, Cassie later said. That displeasure also extended to Chris Stout and being forced into a third wheel situation by Aaron and Hannah. No meet cute, let's set up our friends kind of deal because, lest we forget, Lauren had a boyfriend. Cassie would later tell police that, quote, I feel like she was just having to put up with him. She was Hannah's wingman. Cassie also had a unique understanding of why Lauren might be so unhappy to have found herself grouped together in these less than ideal circumstances. Aaron Lilly was actually Cassie's ex-boyfriend and their relationship had been volatile, both emotionally and physically. However, as it was there, wasn't much Lauren could do. All of the cabins in the area had been rented out, there weren't any hotels available, and wrangling some space on the houseboats of other Wakefest attendees was both near impossible and not to mention uncomfortable in terms of safety and asking. So despite her displeasure with the rooming situation, it seemed Lauren was stuck. Beyond this, we actually don't know much about what happened the Friday of the Wakefest weekend. And that strange gap in the group's timeline is something I get into deeper later on. I think it's safe to say that Lauren probably felt trapped and more than a little left to her own devices with the situation. At 26 now, I absolutely would have pieced the fuck out and said later days to the hammock from hell and just scrapped the whole weekend. But at 21... I can understand why Lauren didn't just leave entirely. 
She'd been looking forward to this fun summer weekend for some weeks, probably thought she could still make the best of it. And the idea of being branded some sort of social wet blanket for going home probably didn't sit well with her outgoing and fun-loving nature. Lauren also drove herself and Hannah to the lake, so I'm sure there was some emotional manipulation or guilt coming into play that made her feel like that she had a duty to stay since Hannah was her passenger. It's eye-opening to look back, even with just a few years difference in age, experiences, and dare I say wisdom, to recognize how differently we would treat situations if we had been a little older, a little surer of ourselves, and less afraid of silly, contrived social expectations. In no way do I blame Lauren for deciding to stay. Hell, I would bet money I myself would have stayed as well at her age and if I'd been in her shoes. I only wish Lauren had thought more about her own autonomy and how she was truly feeling about the situation instead of letting the draw of a party-filled weekend with people she already had misgivings about persuading her to stay. I probably wouldn't be telling you this story if she had. As I said, we don't know much about what happened on the Friday of Wakefest after Lauren arrived, but our story picks up right away on the next day, Saturday, July 26th. The group spent the day just as Lauren imagined she would, watching the wakeboarding competitions, enjoying the time by the lake, and of course, drinking like the fish of the waters that they had invaded. It was another activity on deck for the weekend that nobody really expected, cliff diving. And just how convenient that Lauren, Hannah, Aaron, and Chris were camping on a cliff that had a 90-foot and a 45-foot cliff drop on either side that they could literally choose to take the plunge off of. Lauren's mom finds it hard to believe that Lauren would willingly be diving off of such dangerous heights with even more dangerous hidden rocks below in the waters. But apparently, that's just what she did. Whether she did so fueled by liquid courage, her friend's encouragement, or just wanting to get an adrenaline rush, Lauren dived. And it's here that yet another incident occurred, similarly vague and similarly steeped in hashtag questions. At one point during all of this cliff diving, Lauren allegedly hit the back of her head on the rocks. Hannah, Chris, and Aaron were the only ones who allegedly witnessed this, and they began suggesting that Lauren had a concussion and even might have knocked herself out for a few seconds afterwards. No one else could confirm that this event even happened, and Lauren's autopsy later couldn't or just didn't confirm whether or not she had a concussion at the time of her death. We'll revisit this idea of Lauren hitting the back of her head in a little bit. After the cliff diving of it all, the group made their way across the lake via Aaron or Chris's canoe to spend the rest of the day drinking on the docks and at the marina bar, which was charmingly called Fish Lips. The group seems to have stayed the whole day drinking at the docks as they were spotted by several people, including Cassie Franks and Officer Chris Yarchuk, who was working security for the event. At one point, Chris even allegedly lost sight of the group and ended up snoozing for a bit on someone's houseboat where they found him in the evening. And to be clear, I'm talking about Chris Stout, not Officer Chris Yarchuk. And after running into Lauren for a second time that weekend, Cassie later told police that Lauren seemed fine. Quote, Lauren, definitely there was alcohol in her system, you could tell, but she was having a good time, Cassie later said. For all appearances, Cassie didn't notice anything by way of Lauren having a concussion or a head injury. There were two incidents of note that happened throughout the day drinking that I need to mention, even though they, much like most of the group's activities of the weekend, are frustratingly vague. At some point during the evening, an argument broke out in the Fishlips parking lot. Some say the fight was between Hannah and Cassie arguing over Aaron. Others say Cassie and Aaron fought. Still, another suggestion is that Lauren was fighting with someone from the Clifftop group. From my conversation with Sheila Waisaki and my own research, I believe there was a fight, actually two fights. The fight that took place in the parking lot seems to have been between Aaron and Cassie, and it wouldn't shock me in the slightest if Hannah jumped into the argument since she was currently dating Aaron at the time and felt the need to defend her man against his ex. However, 
I think there was another fight, albeit smaller and not on the same scale as the parking lot fight that caught the attention of several people. At some point during the weekend, Lauren's keys were taken from her and effectively hidden, according to Sheila Waisaki. I think at some point on Saturday, Lauren expressed her desire to head back home to keep her plans with her boyfriend. But knowing she was her ride, Hannah stepped in and argued that she should stay. Later in police interviews, Hannah claimed Lauren wasn't in any sort of position to drive because she had been drinking, which is admittedly both a fair assumption and a fair point to make. However, let's consider, why would Hannah suddenly be playing the safety conscious friend now instead of at any other point throughout the weekend? Because obviously she's not safety conscious, she's selfish. And Lauren leaving on Saturday would have inconvenienced her either because Hannah would have lost her guaranteed ride or because Hannah would also have had to leave earlier than she wanted. It should also be noted, Lauren's car keys, they were never found. All of this activity took place later in the night and at around 2 a.m., the group, Lauren included, began to make moves back to the campsite. Before the gang stuffed themselves into the canoe they were taking back over, Lauren made one last attempt to find somewhere different, somewhere safer to spend the night. She tried asking Cassie if she could stay with her, but the logistics just weren't in her favor. According to Cassie's later statement, quote, Lauren did ask if she could go with my group, but I just, we didn't have any more room. That was the very last time I saw her. With no other feasible options in front of her, Lauren was seen getting into the canoe by several people, Officer Yarchuk included. Yarchuk later told True Crime Daily that he had a, quote, nervous feeling watching the canoe drift away from the docks. And he vividly remembers the fact that he, quote, saw the four of them leave together. A video surfaced after the weekend of the group beginning their journey over to the cliffside. And in the video, several of them can be heard calling and laughing, quote, we're headed to the death trap. Despite the laughter, the video speaks to something important. They knew how dangerous their campsite was. It's an ominous, creepy kind of foreshadowing to what the weekend would come to represent. It was also the last time anyone other than Hannah, Aaron, or Chris would see Lauren alive. The next day, Sunday the 27th, seemed as normal as the preceding days of Wakefest. Fun in the sun, wet and wild, insert other cliche descriptors of summer lakeside frolicking here. That is until 4.45 p.m. when two local fishermen, Father Lynn Blair and his son Dylan, noticed, quote, a bright pink color in the water of a small cove and they maneuvered over to investigate. The pink that they saw was from a pair of shorts, shorts that belonged to Lauren Adji, whose body was floating face down in the water in front of them. The father and son duo quickly alerted Hannah and Deanna Elder, marina employees who oversaw the docks. They, in turn, alerted one of the police officers on hand working event security. That officer happened to be Officer Yarchuk. Yarchuk wasn't working in official police capacity that weekend, and he wasn't within his own department's jurisdiction, but he quickly assumed the familiar role alongside another off-duty, out-of-jurisdiction police officer, Officer Ryan Melanson. With the Blairs directing and Harry driving, the men boarded a pontoon and headed over to the cove where the fishermen had found the body. At the time, only four people outside of the father-son fishermen knew about the discovery. Harry Elder, Deanna Elder, Officer Yarchuk, and Officer Melanson. And yet, just as the two officers, Harry and the fisherman, began getting Lauren's body out of the water, who rocks up but Aaron and Chris in their own canoe, yelling about how, oh, was that their friend? Their friend Lauren? Their friend Lauren, who was missing? Cue Jim from the office, stare directly into a camera. Almost everyone on the pontoon had something to say about the sudden and strange appearance of Aaron and Chris. As the pontoon had been making its way over to the cove, Yarchuk had actually seen the two almost lurking in the area, telling 2020 that, quote, 
on the way out there, I saw the two boys on a canoe hanging on a houseboat, just waiting, directly looking at where the body was. When we came back around, they started screaming, our friend is missing, our friend's missing. It seemed staged. Harry Elder also found the boys' appearance and the apparent knowledge of the situation strange. Quote, Aaron was in a canoe paddling over there and he said to me, quote, that could be one of our friends over there. And I think to myself, that's odd because we haven't publicly announced anything about a person in the water. The boys' appearance became all the fucking stranger when they boarded the pontoon. Officer Mellon said, immediately noticed how nervous their behavior was, how the two kept whispering to each other, and more than once, Aaron allegedly told Chris to, quote, shut up and stick to the story. And he then scrapped the idea of letting Chris speak altogether by admonishing him to, quote, let him do the talking. Mellinson, fully in investigative mode by now, asked the boys as they whispered what they were thinking about. And in a totally normal, not at all bizarre or suspicious way, Aaron shoots back, and this is verbatim, quote, I'm thinking about how I'm going to get that gun off your hip and get off this boat. Needless to say, everyone on board was suddenly wondering what the fuck was up with these two. And beyond how weird they were acting on the pontoon, the behavior they hadn't exhibited since showing up at the cove was also coming into question. If they knew Lauren was missing, why hadn't they alerted any of the marina or dock employees or told the dozens of police officers on hand? Why were they allegedly searching for her in an area that was so far removed from much more viable and logical search points? The cove where Lauren's body was found was literally behind the cliff that they had been camping on. It was on the opposite, completely opposite side of the outcropping, and certainly not the first most logical place to start looking for someone who had gone missing. It was then when the group arrived back to land and were joined by Hannah Palmer, that suspicions really began to run wild. Because Hannah, as she told police, hadn't been worried about Lauren. None, none of them had been. They all assumed she had just gone off somewhere with other people at 4 a.m. that morning. Over 12 hours. That's how much time had passed between anyone's last confirmed sighting of Lauren alive and her body turning up in the cove. Lauren had effectively been missing for 12 hours at the time her body had been found. If we're to believe, the last time she was seen on the clifftop was at 4 a.m. And yet, in all that time, not one of her so-called friends had spared a care in the world to wonder where she had gone. Instead, they quite literally partied throughout the day, later claiming they believed Lauren had simply joined other people while her belongings, her phone, her wallet, even her flip-flops sat untouched under a tree at the campsite. Immediately, these three were pulled into questioning. And just as quickly, their stories started to change. Aaron claimed Lauren never even made it back to the campsite the night before, but that quickly gets shot down and he's told to try again since so many people could say that they had seen Lauren getting into that boat with them, including Officer Yarchuk. He then suggests that she had a fight with her boyfriend and possibly got into a boat with another guy, possibly an ex-boyfriend. He goes on to wash his hands of any guilt by saying, quote, I honestly wasn't really worried about it because I didn't think anything had happened and I didn't think anything would happen. Hannah offered up a similar theory to the first one she'd made, but then makes questionable statements that seem to directly contradict it. She had initially claimed that she saw Lauren get into a boat with another man. Please notice how that's lining up with Aaron's second theory. But she then tells Officer Yarchuk this, quote, I know she probably went to pee, but she didn't have her shoes. She didn't have her keys, wallet, and phone, and she, like, would not leave without that stuff. Which, what? So, like, wait, which is it? She left with some conveniently mysterious dude figure, but in that same breath, Hannah, you're saying Lauren only went to go to the bathroom and couldn't and wouldn't have possibly left the campsite without her belongings. Belongings? 
that you allegedly hid from her the night before. Let's not forget, we still need to hear what Chris Stout says happened. Bless, bless his simple heart, because he doesn't even offer a theory. He just gives an opinion. Chris tells police that, quote, honestly, I don't know. My honest opinion is she got up to go to the bathroom and slipped, but I didn't feel her get up. This, for those keeping track at home, is a direct contradiction to Hannah's first theory that Lauren somehow got into a boat with another guy. It's a direct contradiction to Aaron's first theory that she never made it back to the clifftop. It's a direct contradiction to Aaron's second theory that somewhat aligns with Hannah's first theory of Lauren simply leaving of her own volition, but it disagrees with Hannah's second theory of Lauren going to the bathroom because Hannah claims Lauren wouldn't have gone to the bathroom without all of her stuff. So much for Aaron trying to get anyone to stick to any sort of fucking story because between the three of them, that's, count them, five different theories about what happened to Lauren. Harry and Deanna Elder had their own skepticism to share with overhearing these various theories the three kept spouting off. Quote, I heard she had a fight with her boyfriend. She wasn't up there. To all of a sudden, she was up there, Harry later said. According to his wife, quote, I heard I think she got in a boat with a man. That was another bizarre comment. And I went, mm -mm, no, I'm on board with Diana. DeKalb County, the police department who did have jurisdiction over whatever it is that happened here, finally rocks up to the scene and have taken part in collecting these statements. After the quick questioning of the threesome, they were released and they headed back to the Clifftop campsite where witnesses begin to notice a fire blooming on the top of the outcropping on top of what should have been seen as a campsite. But sure, nothing to see here, nothing at all suspicious with that. And for their part, the DeKalb County Police agreed. Nothing more than an accident had taken place on Center Hill Lake even as Lauren's body and the strange injuries found on her body were being taken to the county hospital. By this point, Lauren's mother had finally been contacted by the sheriff, who only told her that she needed to get to this hospital. Sherry had known, as mothers always do, that something terrible had happened. She hadn't heard from Lauren most of the day Saturday and not at all on Sunday. Lauren was supposed to have returned home on Saturday, so with no word about changing her plans and the continued radio silence, Lauren's parents had grown increasingly frantic as the hours passed. Sherry, her husband Michael, and Lauren's dad raced down to the hospital, only to be met with a, she didn't make it, from the same sheriff by the time that they arrived. Lauren was pronounced dead at around 9 p.m. that Sunday night, July 27th. Having no idea what had happened, Sherry looked around and saw none of the friends Lauren had spent her last few days alive with. She turned to the sheriff and asked, quote, but where are the people she was with? Because as they always do, a mother knows. And Sherry knew something was very, very wrong and very, very suspicious. The DeKalb County Police moved quickly to declare that Lauren's death was nothing more than an accident, a misadventure by drowning, actually, as they later claimed. But from the start of the investigation, the very injuries on Lauren's body contested that theory. From the jump, the allegation that Lauren drowned doesn't fit, almost at all. There was no water found in her lungs, and the theory that she could have died by dry drowning isn't one that fits either. Dry drowning usually occurs in very young children, the elderly, or those who don't have a strong physicality. Lauren was a strong, healthy, trained dancer, so she doesn't fit any of those criteria. Beyond that, the Emmy's theory that she must have sustained the extensive injuries that she did during her, quote, fall into the water is lazy theorizing, and that's me being slightly respectful. The medical examiner posited that Lauren acquired all of these injuries either on the cliffside itself before she hit the water, or she hit those hidden rocks beneath the surface everyone had been warned about during their cliffside diving escapades. 
as it was, the official ruling was that Lauren had died by blunt force trauma consistent with a fall prior to drowning. Let me share with you the list of Lauren's injuries, though. Her BAC was about two times the legal limit, so it's safe to say Lauren was most likely intoxicated at the time of her death. She had bruising on her thighs and her back. Her nose and several fingers were broken. The back of her head was severely injured, just entirely beaten and bloody. She had what appeared to be a bite mark on her breast, and there was a strange triangle-shaped imprint on her stomach. And most curiously, there was hemorrhaging found in Lauren's throat. Putting aside the injuries for a moment, I want to examine the how of Lauren supposedly fell off the cliff and was later found in the cove by the Blairs. If we're to believe she fell off the cliff, it would have been virtually impossible for her body to have traveled with the current over to the cove. And that impossibility holds true to either side of the cliff. On the 90 foot high side of the cliff, if she had fallen off that, her body would have had had to make a literal U-turn to wind up in the cove. Not only was it much farther away from the 90 foot side of the cliff, but the current flowed in the opposite direction and actually flowed away from the cove. It stands to reason that instead of magically floating towards the cove, Lauren's body would have found its way towards the marina. And if it had, she certainly would have been discovered much earlier than at 4.45 that afternoon. On the other hand, and on the other side of the cliff, if Lauren had fallen off of the 45-foot side of the cliff, she would have stayed there, on the cliff that is. Her body would never have made it into the water due to obstacles that would have been in the path of her trajectory. There was too much brush, trees, and other natural occurrences that would have prevented her body from continuing its path towards the water. Dummy tests have taken place over the years, and most notably by the family's PI, Sheila Waisaki, have proven how difficult it would have been for Lauren's body to end up in the water of its own accord. True Crime Daily reported that Waisaki, quote, tried the dummy test close to 50 times with the same results. Quote, we dropped it and we took it to different areas to see if it could hit the bottom of the cliff, said Waisaki. It couldn't, it didn't. It never did. When you fall, you have arms and legs. You don't roll like a ball. So there are arms flailing, legs flailing, said Waisaki. Quote, there's no way she would have hit the water. There's no way she did hit the water. Officer Yarchuk also had his own misgivings about something he noticed the day Lauren's body had been discovered. Not only did the injuries not add up overall in his mind, but he noticed something strange when they retrieved her body from the water. There was a triangle-shaped imprint on Lauren's stomach that he couldn't account for until he saw the canoe that Aaron and Chris had traveled in and realized that the bow of their canoe almost identically matched the marking on Lauren's stomach. In his opinion, Yarchuk believed such a marking would have been made if Lauren's body had been positioned over the bow in such a way that her upper body was hanging in the canoe and her lower half remained in the water. DeKalb County dismissed his concerns about this though, claiming that the mark came from the rescue boat that had transported her body after the fact. But how then to explain why the angles of where the rescue boat allegedly marked her didn't actually match up with the mark on her body? And how then was it that upon further inspection, the mark was much more than a triangle. There was a smaller triangle within the larger one that didn't appear on the area in question on the rescue boat, but it did appear on the bow of the canoe Aaron and Chris used. There were many other instances of shady shit going on with this investigation, if you can't already tell. The ME didn't perform a rape kit on Lauren's body, claiming that since she had a tampon in, she clearly couldn't have been raped. Not only is that just one of the most misogynistic comments I ever heard, I think it's fairly alarming a medical professional, a medical examiner for crimes, actually believes in such ignorance that women can't be raped when they have a tampon in. 
I I have got serious problems with this Emmy overall, but this comment just truly blew me away. Not only that, but Lauren was never swabbed for DNA, something that absolutely should have been done, obviously, and because it would have helped determine if she had perhaps gotten into a physical fight prior to her death. DNA under her fingernails, if there was any, would have provided great insight into painting a more thorough picture of that night on the clifftop. It wasn't just the ME dropping the ball, though. The DeKalb County officers who arrived at the scene did not do due diligence when it came to the crime scene. In fact, it's hard to say that there even was a crime scene because the clifftop campsite was never treated as such. Evidence, most jarringly, by allowing Hannah, Chris, and Aaron to go back unattended, wearing a fire, was later spotted burning at their campsite. Evidence was just never collected. I'm just going to say it. I firmly believe those three were getting rid of evidence and that evidence consisted of Lauren's belongings that were never found or returned to the family. Nobody sue me, allegedly, hypothetically, possibly. <laughs> Not only that, but there were never any crime photos taken and no examination of where Lauren possibly could have fallen occurred. Instead, any areas that may have been stained with blood or showed clear scenes of being disturbed by way of a body breaking brush and disturbing the surrounding nature, they were basically ignored. Instead of adding credence to the assumption that Lauren had rolled off the cliffside, this choice to essentially ignore any evidence at the campsite and surrounding cliffs leaves us with just that, assumptions. There is no hard evidence of what that clifftop even looked like in the aftermath. And because of that, crucial evidence has never been found, never collected, and obviously was never recorded. Another instance the DeKalb County Police chose to brush aside in their investigation, Cassie Franks. Disturbed by what had happened that weekend on the lake, Cassie came forward almost immediately after Lauren's death to share her own experiences particularly her experiences of suffering abuse at the hands of her ex-boyfriend, Aaron Lilly. Their relationship was a volatile one, as I said before, and Cassie approached the police with both her story and photo evidence of the physical abuse she had suffered through. She believed by sharing her story, it might encourage police to dig deeper into the people Lauren had spent her last days with, but she was roundly dismissed and told that there was no foul play involved with Lauren's death since she had simply just fallen off the cliff. It's here I need to sidebar and say, I think what frustrates me most about this case is just how quickly the police decided what they believed happened instead of actually thoroughly investigating what happened. From the lack of preserving the crime scene, the ease with which they seem to just decide what happened to Lauren, and to the fact that the incident report that was written after the fact was only two paragraphs long, the whole thing reeks of incompetence and just a lack of care. Why did they immediately jump to the conclusion that this was an accident without getting a full, thorough picture of the weekend? Why did they close the case so quickly? Why does this all feel so shady? And it wasn't just the open and shut investigation that invites the shady vibes. Hannah, Aaron, and Chris continued acting in strange manners after that weekend, and hell, even during that weekend. One of the most eyebrow-raising moments of this threesome's behavior comes from Chris's Instagram. He posted a shot from the weekend with the caption, quote, best weekend ever. Allegedly, this was posted before Lauren's body was found, and I do want to make sure that's noted, but I still find the whole thing a little weird, especially given to what he changed the caption to after the fact, when I assume he was called out for it. Once Lauren's body had been found, the caption on Chris's Instagram was changed to, quote, Wakefest 2015 went pretty good this year. Met some new friends, and that made it awesome. What, Christopher, is so awesome about one of those new friends winding up dead? I actually think the secondary caption is way more problematic than the first. Like, truly talk about tone deaf. 
the reactions that Hannah, Chris, and Aaron had in the aftermath of the weekend were also noticeable. Or maybe it's better to say that their lack of reactions were the truly noticeable part. One of the things that first struck Sherry as odd about the threesome's behavior was how none of them had gone to the hospital following the discovery of Lauren's body. Instead, they all stayed at Wakefest after they were released from their quick questioning by police and allegedly continued to party. It shouldn't be surprising then to share that not one of them showed up to any of the memorial services for Lauren and none of them attended Lauren's funeral. And just one month after Lauren died, Hannah and Chris packed up and left town, moving all the way to Florida. I actually mean Hannah and Aaron packed up and left town. Excuse me. It wasn't long after this surprise move to Florida that Sherry reached out to Hannah again. She was a grieving mother, still shocked by how one weekend had turned out so terribly, and was hopeful Hannah would shed more light about the events leading up to Lauren's death. The two apparently set up a Skype call where Hannah once again allegedly changed her story about what happened that night. She claims that Lauren must have gone off to use the bathroom and that's when she fell off the cliff. However, this once again directly contradicts the several other stories she initially told investigators. And Sherry noticed this. In the midst of their call though, Hannah got a phone call and from the other end of the line, Sherry could allegedly hear the voice of Aaron telling Hannah his old phrase, quote, shut up and stick to the story. Now, save the miracle of Hannah coming forward to confirm the events of this Skype call. It's an event we have to take with a grain of salt as it's coming from Lauren's obviously grieving mother. But once again, stories seem to be changing, behavior is increasingly suspicious, and what shrieks me most about this case is that the closer you look at the details surrounding the events, the cases DeKalb County and Hara, Hannah, Aaron, and Chris presented just simply begins to fall apart. It's with that strange phenomenon of the case being so shaky upon closer inspection in mind that Sherry decided to pursue legal action after Lauren's case was closed. In 2016, Hannah, Aaron, and Chris simply refused to speak to police and stopped talking about anything to do with what happened to Lauren. Desperate to, quote, just force them to talk, Sherry filed a $10 million loss, wrongful death lawsuit against Hannah, Aaron, and Chris in December 2016. Though she says it was never about the money and just the fact she believes that there is much more information the three haven't shared with police. Armed with a list of questions and subpoenas for the three, Alex Little, the lawyer hired by Lauren's family, was prepared for anything except what happened. Throughout the entire course of questioning, all three asserted their right to protect themselves from self-incrimination. That is to say, they pled the fifth to almost every single question they were asked. It was reported that the Fifth Amendment was invoked by these three a total of 152 times. I think something that's interesting here to note is that so often when we see the Fifth Amendment being used, it's on police procedurals and law and order type shows. You have the right to remain silent and whatnot. But the usage of pleading the fifth in a subpoena situation, and certainly in a case like this, really highlights what the amendment is all about. The right to remain silent so you can protect yourself from admitting that you've done anything incriminating. If you can't answer a question like, did you physically touch or harm Lauren without admitting to something incriminating, there is something really wrong here. However, on March 24th, 2017, a DeKalb County judge ruled that there wasn't enough evidence to hold Hannah accountable in the wrongful death lawsuit, and her name was dropped from the suit. Hannah was primarily dropped because of the amount of time she pled the fifth and because she asked for a summary judgment instead. Another blow was dealt in 2018 when Sherry was forced to drop the lawsuit against the remaining defendants because she refused to adhere to a gag order which would have prevented her or Sheila Waisaki from speaking publicly about the case. You might be thinking that this is about the time where we start discussing the theories and hashtag fucking questions of our time together. But no. 
everything I've told you about what took place the weekend that Lauren died is about to be blown out of the water, no pun intended, with just one piece of information. It's a piece of information that I discovered when I was just about through with all of my research. And it's one that forced me to re-examine everything I had known and thought I'd known about what happened to Lauren that weekend. Because you see, there was someone else on the clifftop that weekend with Lauren, Hannah, Chris, and Aaron. There weren't just four people staying at the makeshift campsite that weekend. There were five. The fifth person is someone Hannah, Aaron, and Chris have made sure to essentially erase by omission from every story and testimony that they've shared since that weekend. It was only through a few rarely mentioned details that this person came onto my radar. And that person was also named in the wrongful death suit, right alongside Hannah, Chris, and Aaron. That person is Bricks Gambrell, and he's tied into almost every aspect of what happened that weekend. Bricks Gambrell was about four years older than Lauren at the time all of this took place, and much like the other boys, she didn't know him. And according to Sherry, Lauren most likely wouldn't have wanted to know him. I need to say, there's a lot of information about the type of person Bricks is that's available online, and why he wouldn't be someone Lauren would have wanted to be friends with. I invite anyone who is curious to do some investigating yourselves because the internet is abound with allegations and they're made up of stuff that I don't think my allegedly, allegedly, nobody sue me chant would really help cover. That said, that weekend, Bricks was actually with Aaron when they both selected and set up the campsite on the clifftop before Lauren and Hannah arrived. Another girl, Samantha Arnold, actually also stayed the night on the cliff with them, but only for that first Friday night. Bricks, however, was with them through the whole weekend, so much so that various other Wakefest attendees also recalled seeing him with the group and counting him as another member of that group. If that's the case, why wasn't his name ever mentioned until legal action started taking place? The reason I first even heard about Bricks was because his name was included in the list of defendants for the wrongful death lawsuit and on a witness statement relating to the suit. A Wakefest attendee, a man named Chris Brown, unfortunately for him, came forward to say that he believed he and his family saw and interacted with Aaron just after midnight on Saturday night into Sunday morning. Brown claims that a man pulled himself up onto the dock, claiming he had almost drowned while looking for his friends. He looked distraught in Brown's opinion, and it was only after the news of Lauren's death did Brown realize that he and his family had spoken to who he believed was Aaron Lilly. This potential sighting is interesting for a few reasons, primarily because this raises some hashtag questions about the night's timeline. The group was seen heading back to the clifftop around 2 a.m. If this person really was Aaron, what was he doing in the water at midnight? And why did he seem so distraught? Had he possibly fallen out of the boat? Had he had some weird interaction with the crew that led to him being left in the water? Brown's testimony is an interesting one to mull over, especially because it gives credence to the fact that in his statement with bricks being listed, Bricks was absolutely with the group. There are a few other instances of Bricks popping up after the events of the weekend. The day after Lauren was found dead, that Monday, he, I'm not fucking kidding, he actually showed up at the family house asking to speak to Sherry. Sherry had never even heard of this Bricks dude, and even though he claimed to be a friend of her son and Lauren's brother, Josh, Sherry claims that she allowed Bricks into the house, but he didn't stay for very long. He was visibly nervous and, quote, wouldn't look her in the eye. He had just a few questions for her, and he stammered his way through them, essentially asking a bewildered Sherry if she, quote, knew what went on during the weekend and that he was, quote, wondering if she knew anything, which truly, what the fuck, like, what kind of line of questioning is this to be asking the mother of a girl you spent the weekend with who then wound up dead? 
Sherry claims he didn't stay much longer than to ask his few uncomfortable questions, and she's never been able to make heads nor tails of the interaction since. However, she did have one more interaction with him, because Sherry saw Bricks in the back of the video call that she claims that she had with Hannah after she and Aaron had moved down to Florida. This dude is seemingly nowhere and everywhere throughout this story at the same time. He's even had phone calls with Chris, who since Lauren's death has been in prison serving a sentence for his third DUI. And Chris testified in a deposition that, though he hadn't known Bricks before the weekend, he had since called him a few times during his incarceration. They had discussed the wrongful death lawsuit, and Bricks was actually being entrusted to watch and take care of Chris's boat for him while he was in jail. This guy is seriously just made up entirely of contradictions. He's there, but never mentioned. He's nobody's friend, but suddenly knows and is close with everyone involved. He's shady, he's sketchy, and it's clear he's attempting to be painted as a fringe character in this story, even though the truth of the matter is that he's anything but. So what is the deal with Bricks Gambrell? With that question... I think it's about time that we ask the whole litany of hashtag fucking questions I have when it comes to what exactly happened to Lauren. What really happened on the Friday night that Lauren arrived at the lake and why do we know so little about it? Did Lauren know beforehand that they would be camping or did Hannah spring this on her at the last second? Who all definitively stayed on the cliffside both Friday and Saturday night? Did Lauren really hit her head while cliff diving Saturday? And if she didn't, how did the back of her head come to be so beaten and bloody as evidence in her autopsy? This might just be my own neuroses, but how the fuck were these kids like diving and swimming to and from the marina and the bar with their stuff, like their wallet, so they could go drink at the bar? Did they just swim as their primary mode of transportation all weekend? Or did they use the canoe and boat that they were said to have? Why is it so difficult to get this particular aspect of the story straight? What happened in regards to the fight in the Fishlips parking lot? Who was involved? And again, why has it been so difficult to get this particular aspect of the story straight? Who took Lauren's keys away from her? Why have they never been found? Hell, why haven't any of Lauren's things been found? None of them have ever been returned to the family. Why the fuck didn't Hannah, Chris, and or Aaron report Lauren missing all throughout Sunday after she had been allegedly missing for more than 12 hours? Why, or maybe how did they come to be, why were Aaron and Chris miraculously at the cove when the Blairs and the officers showed up to investigate the body the Blairs had found? Are we to believe Lauren's body made it into the cove of its own accord when the current was going in the other direction? If Lauren fell off the cliffside like Hannah, Chris, and Aaron seemed to want us to believe, where was the path of her fall? Why did the police treat the clifftop campsite appropriately in that they should have treated it like a crime scene? What was up with Aaron spouting off about taking the gun from Yardchuck's hip when they recovered Lauren's body? And why was he trying to shut Chris up? Why do these three have stories that consistently changed as they told them? And why were they released so quickly after being, quote, interviewed, which feels really generous as a term to describe what they told the police? What was the deal with the reports of seeing a fire going on the cliffside after Hannah, Chris, and Aaron were questioned and let go? Were they burning evidence that might have incriminated them? Is the triangle imprint that was found on Lauren's body actually from being thrown into the canoe that Chris and Aaron had? And if it wasn't, where, where did it come from? What caused the hemorrhaging in Lauren's throat? It doesn't match up at all with her other injuries and her cause of death, which is supposed to have been drowning. Why didn't the ME perform a rape kit? And how does he still have his medical license if he actually believes women can't be raped if they have a tampon in? Why wasn't Lauren swabbed for DNA at all? In fact, why weren't any investigative protocols followed seriously at all? 
Why did the police try to close the investigation so quickly? Did they close the investigation so quickly because they didn't want to jeopardize Wakefest and what a known financial boon to the community that it was? Hannah, Aaron, and Chris made no mention of anyone else being with them that weekend, but it's become clear that Brick Scambrell was a part of that weekend. Why are they trying to hide this dude? What role does he play in all of this? What happened on the clifftop leading up to Lauren's death? In terms of where things stand now, in 2019, the Nashville Court of Appeals overturned the original DeKalb County judge's ruling that there wasn't enough evidence to include Hannah in the wrongful death lawsuit Sherry brought against the four people that were with Lauren when she died. Sherry already had to drop the lawsuit against Chris, Aaron, and Bricks, and the same DeKalb judge had threatened her with a gag order that would result in jail time if she didn't, and if she didn't adhere to the gag order. So it's a bit of a bright spot that the Nashville Appeals Court, in a unanimous decision, it should be noted, overturned that ruling and said, nope, get that bitch back on the lawsuit because there is, in fact, enough evidence against Hannah and what she might have done to Lauren. In fact, the appeals court gave the AGs the go-ahead to continue with their lawsuit entirely. Currently, the lawsuit against Hannah Palmer, Chris Stout, Aaron Lilly, and Brick Scambrell is pending. So where does that leave us then on this, actually, the anniversary of Lauren's death exactly five years later? Beneath all of the changing stories and the outright lies we were given by Hannah, Chris, and Aaron, I think all of them lead back to a similar thread of truth. Something took place that Saturday night into Sunday morning on the clifftop. And whatever it was, it resulted in Lauren's death. We were given all sorts of options to pick from in a twisted choose-your-own-adventure storyline that Hannah, Chris, and Aaron tried to offer up. Maybe Lauren drunkenly fell off the cliff while trying to go to the bathroom. Maybe she just simply fell. Aaron tried to sell us on the idea she cliff-dived in the middle of the night to meet up with some dudes. But all of these tissue-thin excuses don't stand up to both scrutiny and reason. With the purposeful admission of Brick Scambrell's presence, it's clear that these three were doing everything in their power to cover something up. And the DeKalb police were too willing to buy into their lies in order to protect Wakefest as a whole from coming under investigation and threatening what is obviously a massive financial player in the community. Because it's clear that when you cut through all the obvious lies, the twisted stories, and the opinions of those who chose to look the other way, however Lauren died, she was purposely moved to that cove. And that suggests that Lauren didn't just die, but that she was murdered. Did someone hurt Lauren? Was it an accident? Was she assaulted by one of the boys on the cliffside that night? Did this possible assault lead to Lauren being seriously injured or even killed? And after all is said and done, did Hannah, Chris, and Aaron, in a fit of panicked self-preservation, try to cover it up as best they could and simply lucked into having a police department who was all too willing to go along with their stories? What happened to Lauren Agee and why wasn't her death given the investigations she deserved at the time? It's been five years today since Lauren's body was discovered and the life that this beautiful, charming, effervescent young woman had before her was stolen in a cruel combination of violence and indifference. I think that's the thing that haunts me most about this case. I see so, so much of myself in Lauren and it's terrifying to imagine that this entire investigation wasn't taken seriously simply because she was a young woman having a good time before she turned up dead in extremely suspicious circumstances that were willfully ignored. It's terrifying because that's a scenario I think we see far, far too often as well. And if you're anything like me, I think it's high fucking time Lauren's family gets the answers that they deserve and Lauren gets the justice that's long been hers and long been overdue. Lauren Ag, you are missed and your story is still being told. And justice is still on your horizon. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question loaded story to tell you all. If you like what you're hearing, hang out and stay a while by subscribing on your preferred podcast platform. 
and leave a rating and review if you're really leaning into the DAW at all. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to the newest member of the DAW Patreon crew, Annie McGinnis. Your support truly means the world. So thank you for keeping the figurative DAW lights on, keeping producer Poppy fed, and keeping the spooky coming. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at, at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasthellpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in joining the Dot Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkasthellpodcast to see what level might tickle your spooky fancy. This week, I actually coordinated the first Wine and Weirds live stream event for Patreon members, where we discussed just what the fuck is going on at Fort Hood. And this coming week, I'll be rounding up the true crime news of the month, which includes me wondering who's going to tell Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell that uh, the world didn't end last week like they swore up and down it would. Truly, I don't think you want to miss this, so come be a part of Da Spooky Crew. Patreon.com slash Dark as Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again. Yeah.